Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for all of you who are joining us here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And thank you to all of you who are joining us online. I'd like to introduce to you our uh, amazing and esteemed speakers, our panel of speakers. And by the way, um, let's give them another round of applause. Show them some love because it's, it's a big deal to be up here. We have David W. Bond. He's a licensed clinical social worker, board certified expert in traumatic stress, director of behavioral health of Blue Shield of California and Promise Health Plan. We have Howie, who is a youth leader from youth, a youth power fund fellow and from Yo Cali. And on Zoom with us, we have Sabrina Kinslow is right there on the screen. Sabrina, you look great. Vice President of Programming and Impact from Do Something. We also have, uh, going out of order here a little bit, but, but next to Sabrina, we have Zitlali Ordanes, who's a community outreach worker from Chalk SF, and Land Steward of Hummingbird Farm. And um, last but not least, Samuel Bass, who I actually had here first on my notes, Lead Youth Organizer and Community Outreach Specialist for Youth Alliance. So welcome, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us for this important panel. I'll start out by saying, you know, me. My parents are refugees from Laos, trying to escape uh, the communist war. A few years after they got here, I was pretty much only two years old. My dad died from a brain aneurysm, leaving my mom to raise five young kids, all 10 and under, uh, on her own. We grew up, from what I remember, you know, sharing a one bedroom with someone else who's a roommate. Grew up um, extremely poor. Um, I came out uh, about in my teenage years. My mom made me go to a Buddhist monastery every summer to try to pray it away, I guess. I didn't realize it from then on. But these are just a couple of the experiences I had as a young person. And when I hit my adult life, I'd always just thought that they're my unfortunate experiences. It was just my fate. And I just had to live with it, no matter how sad, depressed, or how difficult or how stressful it was for me. I never realized that there was support out there, that there is help, that there are tools to make me be the best version of myself that I could possibly be. So those are my lived experiences. And I think that, you know, those lived experiences shape who we are, what we are. It impacts our mental health. I'll start with David first. And if you could share your lived experiences with us and how it affected your mental health. Sure. And, and thanks, for, uh, Michelle, for having this. Uh, Michelle Meow, that was my version of putting your names together i've been meowed many times it's okay <laughs> uh, so um i my uh let me see i, I grew up in a, a very very small town in the midwest um that had a lot of value on everyone being the same and my father died when i was almost a year old and he was a minister in the church that i was born into um so there's a lot of pressure about um following in his footsteps and that um, not only God, but also my father were observing every thought and feeling that I had, which caused a lot of anxiety um, as I was emergently gay, but trying so hard to suppress it. Um, and this is in 
you know, in the 80s and, and 90s where there were zero LGBTQ representation on in the media at all. Like this was pre-Ellen, pre-Will and Grace. The only representation of anything LGBTQ um, was the narrative of, of gay men living with and dying of AIDS. So um, the, be, having the other people around me perceive me to be gay, even though I was fighting it so hard, uh, led to just me constant harassment and bullying my memory is every day, um, all the way through high school. And at the time, it didn't matter if you were a gay boy or uh, a trans girl or someone who is non-binary or genderqueer. All of us got lumped together and called the gay F word. Um, so it was, uh, it, we didn't even really have words for other communities within LGBTQ. It was really just gay or not at the time. Um, so I, I think, though, that uh, being able to sort of move out of that situation and um, finding a community of people that were more like me and understanding more about myself and finally being able to identify the support where and when I could um, had led me through to a career now in mental health where my professional mission is to help people end pain and suffering because no one should have to feel like that and we should all be empowered to be our, our authentic selves. Awesome. Thank you so much, David. Howie. Um, thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for having us on the show again. Uh, my name is Howie. I am a child of immigrants. I am an immigrant myself. I was born in the Oromia region of Ethiopia and immigrated to the U.S. in the, in the late 2000s. So we came here during the hit of the recession. So I think since we set foot, um, you know, with immigrants, we operate from a scarcity mentality. So the topic of mental health wasn't something that was discussed in our household. Um, so I didn't know what mental health was, I think. I've definitely, um, and then watching my, you know, the operation of my, uh, I grew up uh, with a single father. Um, I lost my mother um, at a very early age, so I also didn't know how to process that as well. And so there wasn't time to process because it was movement, movement, survival, survival. And moving from a survival instinct really um really left me to th not think about mental health. And it wasn't until through, um, I guess, media. And then really when I started organizing is when I realized about holistic care and wellness and what me mental health really means. And so currently, I think, um, really, I think organizing is a way of how I do my healing. And it's how I've learned what healing looks like and what it can look like uh, as well. And so that's why I'm here to talk about it. So. Um. Yeah, so thank you for y'all for sharing and yeah, just having me here. You know, it's a pleasure to be here speaking to everybody. Um, for me, yeah, once again, my name is Sam. And I think an experience that really shaped how I see mental health and how I address it is uh, Hurricane Katrina. So for me, I was born in Mississippi. I lived there till I was six years old. And then that was when Hurricane Katrina hit. And so I had to move. And for me, I was actually very fortunate in that I was able to evacuate, so I wasn't there when it happened, but it still caused a lot of instability and other difficulties in my life that I had to deal with. Um, I mean, I had just started a new school just a few weeks before, so I was like, I was just starting to make friends, you know? Um, and then after that, I moved, like I said, with to, uh, around the LA area, because that's where my grandparents were, so we moved in with them. And I basically did like a little less than half a year over there, and then... After that, my dad found a job in Northern California. So then I moved to Morgan Hill, which is where I still live today. And so I had an, I finished first grade out in Morgan Hill. And then after that, there was like even issues in the district and stuff. So I had to switch schools again. 
So switching four schools within like the sp- the span of a year was really difficult, you know, being six to seven years old that age during that period. It's like that's a that's a very important time in socialization, learning how to make and build relationships, friendships, all that. So even today, I still feel the effects of that of knowing like what healthy relationships are, you know, respecting my own boundaries as well as other people's. And for me, you know, obviously that's difficult, but at the same time, I see, I try to look at the positive things and I see how it's made me better to serve the youth that I work with because now I relate to them better and how they went through the pandemic at such an early age, you know, that's also a very important age of socialization for them where they're learning relationships and all that. So to me, it's cool because I can even understand how they might invalidate their feelings. Like for me, for the longest, I said I got to evacuate. You know, I didn't see dead bodies in the streets or anything like people who couldn't. And so just neglecting my own needs and my mental health issues related to that for the longest, you know, really not good. And with these children that I deal with, you know, yeah, a lot of people lost loved ones they care about, but not everyone. And so, you know, for the youth that didn't lose people they care about, they might be invalidating their own needs like I once did. And just saying, yeah, like I didn't lose anybody. But the truth is like, no, you still had to leave school because, you know, it wasn't safe to keep having schools open. And, you know, they had to go home where they might have been lonely. You know, they might have dealt with domestic abuse in their homes, being very chaotic. So, Um, I'm able to just tell them like, hey, your feelings are valid. You know, I see you and I hear you and I'm here for you. And so, you know, different kids will take it different ways. But, you know, I feel like it it has helped me in the work that I do. So, like I said, I just try to look at the positive things. Hey, y'all. My name is Siklali. Thank you all who have shared. Um, I'm born and raised in the city here on unceded Ohlone land and that definitely has shaped a lot of my experiences. Um, I'm the daughter of immigrants and um, I'm also the oldest child um, in my household and so growing up like I never saw my parents ask for help. Um, they're always like how we mentioned like always on survival mode so um, growing up I was the one in the household who spoke English and understood English, could read English, could write English. So whenever there was any paperwork, like, I was the one filling everything out. Um, I was always, like, the go-to to translate all the documents that came to my house. And seeing my parents not ask for help kind of, like, made me think, like, oh, like, you don't really ask for help. You just do everything on your own. And that definitely had a big impact on my mental health. Um, especially when I decided to go into, like, higher education, I didn't really have anyone that I could go and ask support, like, how do you do this? Because, like, my parents had never done anything here in the U.S. Um, so going to, into higher education, not having any support, like, not really being used to asking for help definitely did a lot for me in, like, mental health experience. Um and then also, like, when COVID hit, I was still in school, and that's when I really learned how to ask for help and ask for support, and, like, on the Zoom meetings and the chat, it was, like, less intimidating to, like, message my professor and be like, hey, I need help in this, um, and so I'm thankful for that experience. Thank you so much for sharing. I know all about the, you gotta read the mail. <laughs> I still do that 
for my parents uh, or my mom actually you know 40 years later years later sabrina sabrina hello uh, sabrina here uh, representing do something.org and you know i would say there was a turning point um, where I really started paying attention to my mental health and well-being. So I come from a family where education and performing um, at a high level is extremely important. Excellence is the standard. Um, and I started dealing with grief at a young age when my great-grandmother died. I was in about middle school, and she was the type of person who everyone felt like you were her favorite because that's how she made each person feel in our family. Um, she passed away, and then days later, people just continued on with their life, their jobs, their education, whatever they were doing. And it was, well, she's in a better place. We're still here on earth living. So we continue our lives. Um, and that was constantly what it felt like what I heard throughout life, um, no matter what happened, right? You still have to perform, you still have to do well, you still have to get the job done. And then I went to college and an undergrad, um, I had an experience where I was assaulted and while I was on campus and I sought out uh, mental health support um, at our campus student center. And unfortunately, it was a terrible experience where um, there was a lot of victim blaming. Um, I was gaslit. Um, I was told it wasn't as serious as, you know, I was making it seem I was being dramatic. Um, so there was a time when I just felt like, well, if no one's going to listen, um, I'm not being seen. What I do is I just throw myself back into my academics. And it was that constant cycle of this is how you get over things and the suppressing of it. Um, and then in 2014, I experienced my father's death. And six months after that, I saw my first therapist because during that time, um, and again, never having dealt with grief, truly not speaking with anyone, no one talking to me about what it was. Um, I actually would have times where grief would just overwhelm me. I would be driving and it would randomly overwhelm me. And I would stop on the side of the road and be crying in tears, just couldn't get it together. And I said, there's something wrong. I'm trying to push through. I'm going to work. I'm performing. I'm excelling. I'm doing 101 things. Um, and it's not working. I'm sad. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know why I'm having these moments of just not being able to get it together and move on. Um, and then at that time, that's when I was like, yeah, I think it's time to actually talk to someone about what's going on. I've been suppressing all the emotions of everything for most of my life. And that was a turning point when I said, you know, this is not how it should be. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much all. So the next question is just kind of if you, you know, want to contribute to to answer it, um, please jump in. But let's talk about societal impacts. I think a few things I've heard from each and every one of you. There's some stigma around mental health, obviously. Right. Like, for example, I didn't go get help for the longest time because I didn't want people to think I'm crazy. And I, I really don't like that word. And uh, when I did go get help, people thought that there was something wrong with me, like like. You know, what, 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 what's wrong with you? Uh, so let's talk about some of the societal impacts, the stigma. I heard toxic masculinity, or, you know, even right. Anti LGBTQ, uh, politics, there's a laundry list for some of us. <laughs> Religion. <laughs> David, you go first. Then. Um, 
Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, okay, so b- before... It's easier to talk about other people than it is to talk about yourself, right? So before I, I worked for Blue Shield of California, um, I was in charge... Uh, I was responsible for a national suicide prevention organization for LGBTQ young people, and um, we had 24-hour call centers. Anyway... The night of the Pulse shootings in 2016, where 49 LGBT people were shot, um, were, uh, were killed, um, we had the highest call volume to our call centers than we had had in the 18-year history of that organization. And it's not because suddenly that many people became suicidal and they had to have a suicide crisis line. It was because that many people had that emotional distress and didn't have someone else to talk to. Um, and I remember uh, one, I was listening to one person's call and she said she was watching it on the news and her father said yes and those people deserved it. And it was that concept of like, I, something is so hurtful and I'm so scared and ashamed and I don't know where to go and I feel all alone in the world. And even the people around me who are meant to love me are also rejecting of this thing about me that they may or may not know about. And then a few months later, the night of the presidential election in 2016, we had twice the call volume that we had the night of the Pulse Massacre. And I wouldn't say that because of a presidential election, people become more suicidal. Again, it was that feeling of, I didn't know so many people don't share my values, which was the perception of what happened in that election. Um, with any election, I think that happens. It's, it, it's about if you value this thing, you don't value me, and it's about you can't possibly love me. So it was, uh, it, it's that concept of like, how do we really talk to each other about whether we care about each other as human beings? We, we see each other, we, we witness our humanity. Um, that society, based on whether it's politics or religion or even, you know, TikTok or YouTube or, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of stop there. Like, there's so many of those impacts that just influence both risk and resilience based depend on how we expose ourselves to those platforms. Thousand percent. Like to go next. Sam? I could. Um, so, yeah, I would say um, a societal impact for me is, you know, growing up as a male, you could definitely say I picked up on ideas of toxic masculinity. Um, and, you know, I, I really want to emphasize that this doesn't just hurt, you know, non-males. It hurts everybody, really. And so for me, those ideas involved thinking that you can't be tough if you struggle with mental health. Now I know everyone struggles with it at some point. But when I was younger, I didn't. And so for the longest, like I said, I was neglecting my own needs. I was, you know, pushing to the side my own feelings, trying to suppress them. And looking back on it, I remember when I was young, there were times I would just like snap and like take my anger out on people. And I would like right away, I would say, wait, that wasn't right. You know, like that person didn't deserve it. That They're not the source of all my anger. They just said a little thing that triggered me, you know. And so that's kind of more of the short, short term effects. And then long term, it was like I did it. I pushed feelings to the side for so long that eventually I had like a series of panic attacks and for people who know and who've had panic attacks, it's like, it feels like you're going to die. You know, the first time you have one or 
it feels like you're going crazy. And I agree. I hate that word, but that's how, I f- that's how I felt in the moment. And so, you know, from then on, because that was my second year in college, I waited that long to really go in a journey of, you know, paying attention to my mental health and actively trying to work on it. And I wish it didn't take that long. I wish I didn't have to go through that. And so that's why in my work, I just try to work with youth and help them work on their mental health before they ever have to go through stuff like that. Because I waited way too long and I felt the effects of that. So, yeah. You want to add? Howie? I, I can go. Yeah. Um, so, societal. Um, again, I have multiple identities, but specifically, I think I talked to earlier about being an immigrant. Um, the the hustle mentality, the the survival, the scarcity mentality is not something that I also witnessed in my dad, but it's also something that I inherited because in my mind, I made it. This is the land of opportunity. So I had to seize that opportunity. It's not something that my family members could have. And I was... Um, I was one of the only few within my, uh, my only, my, the only family I have is my immediate family and everybody else was back home. So I had to set that example. So I had to excel academically. I had to be the best number one. And so that meant that like, although I experienced loss, although I was, you know, in these spaces to um, Sabrina's point, it was repression, 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 because excellence was necessary. Excellence was required. Excellence was demanded. And then also being a black woman on top of that, it's like, there is no space to feel because you are the strong black woman. And the myth of the strong black woman is that you are the glue, you are the strength, you are the the center of it, and you're supposed to hold everyone together. And so you can't have moments of weakness. You can't show weakness because that that's not your myth. That's not who you are. So it's like, these moments where I would feel uncertainty, where I would feel weakness or I would feel self-doubt, it, it, it can't exist. So it was always um, invalidating my own feelings, um, so, um, definitely a lot of shoving that down to then pursue um, academic and, I guess, excellence in general. And then it really, um, and when you do that, it manifests in certain ways. So it's not necessarily verbal. It would be in physical where similar to um, Sam, I would also have panic attacks. Or um, I think my first panic attack, I was like, I think I'm having a heart attack. Like, can you be like 16 and have a heart attack? Is this, is this right? And so, and it wasn't until I realized what these were that I was like, oh, mental health is real. And I need to validate my own feelings. And it's not something... Um, it's something that I'm actively working on. I think um, dismantling that that mentality that society feeds you um, takes a lot of work, and it's something that some is slowly like as you break it down, it creeps back up on you. And so you really, really, I really, really actively work on it, and have to send myself reminders to be like, "Hey, positive self talk. School, academics, excellence does not define you. You as a human being." are worthy of it in itself and your your value isn't in comparison to others it's you have value because you are you and so that's the things that i'm currently working on and hope to work on i know right i was yeah. i was like i don't know <laughs> yeah come on <laughs> we don't have to be too quiet here actually y'all could join in the conversation because i feel like we could all share too anyone else want to add uh, and share on this question of societal impacts Sitlali or Sabrina? Sitlali? Yeah, yeah. I see you shaking yeah. your head. Yeah. Um, for me and my family, if you went to, if you even talked about like going to therapy, like you were automatically labeled, like you say, crazy. So like 
um, hearing my cousins be like, oh, my God, you're crazy if you do that. I was like, I don't want to be crazy. It's like I never wanted to do therapy. Um, and then, like, having all these, like, pressures on me, like, being the first one in my family to graduate from college and, like, doing it on my own, not having the support from my parents except for, like, moral support from them um, was really hard. And I also um, kind of just, like, only focused on school, didn't really do anything for my mental health and like Howie and Sam shared I also had like panic attacks because I was just like suppressing my feelings and only like looking having like that tunnel vision about school um and it wasn't until I had these panic attacks that I was like okay like I need to I need to take a deep breath and like really like prioritize like my health and like realizing that like my health is physical emotional spiritual like it's not just like oh is my blood pressure okay like you know how am I feeling today today like regulating my emotions and so um slowly learning about like other therapies that I could do like it doesn't have to be you know just going in and sitting and talking to someone about your feelings like um I had gone to therapy when I was younger and it didn't really work out for me and it really stuck but one therapist recommended my parents putting me into like a sport or like some sort of like extracurricular a hobby and when I started um I started playing soccer and that was like such a great outlet for me to like take out my stress like any anger and it was also very healthy and so I think that helped a lot mm. yeah thank you thank you so much for that I think that's a great segue I'll just jump to the next question we'll start with Sabrina your answer for this but like Right. Like there are different healing mechanisms. And especially for some of us where, you know, the trauma trauma stacks on, um, there are different things that we have to do. I mean, when I first did therapy, it didn't work for me. Actually, it was um, it was very, in my opinion, I think it made things worse because the person didn't really understand what was coming from culturally. And also at that time, I was a, a victim of my domestic violence and I still kept feeling like, oh, it's my fault. Now, it's, you know, not on top of that kind of therapy, I can do things like say no. Saying no actually helps a lot in my world. So, Sabrina, talk to us about some other healing mechanisms. Wonderful. I think that's a great question and, and something that um, I've really paid attention to more in the past few years, especially in my own practice. So, um, I am a licensed master social worker and I've worked with our unhoused um, folks, um, folks with uh, mental um, disorders, diagnosed substance use uh, challenges, folks in school, our young people in school and what they're dealing with, especially with going back to school um, after COVID. And something that I think is extremely important before we talk about healing mechanisms is recognizing that everything that people are experiencing is valid, right? Um, and it looks different for different people. And that's why it's important to have different methods of therapeutic supports. Um, so for me, you know, one thing that I started doing in the past few months was gardening. I'm able to focus on the digging, the planting, um, the doing of actually um, being able to grow something instead of focusing on the hundreds of emails that I may have to answer the next day at work or, you know, a family conversation or, or something of that nature. It's a form of self-care or what a lot of people call self-care. I, I say it's therapeutic supports, whatever that looks like for you. Um, but as many folks on the panel in person have already said, you know, it's not just about talking to someone um, in their office. There are so many um, other types of therapy. And part of that is finding someone or finding an organization that supports what that is for you um, and being heard and being seen in that. 
Um, so yes, I, I have a therapist and I believe, you know, preventative care and overall well-being is important. And, you know, something that she reminds me to do is take time for you. What does that look like to make you feel full? Um, you can't feel other people if you don't feel full, if you're not dealing with your own challenges. So taking a walk, getting active, um, as you know, someone on the panel said, being involved in those sports and extracurricular activities, getting fresh air, not um, secluding yourself. That's what I did, you know, in my 20s. I would, um, I would, uh, I, I would be in my home or, you know, wherever I was, I wouldn't talk to folks when I was feeling bad. I wouldn't go out um, and enjoy those activities that I used to enjoy, the arts, uh, dancing, engaging in some type of class, right, that gets you out of that funkin around other people, even if you're not talking to them. All those things are important. All of those things can be therapeutic. And I would always suggest to people to find a mix, right, that works for you. Um, you can talk to a therapist and you can pray to a higher power if that's what you want to do. Um, you can play sports. You can go to museums. Uh, you can journal. Um, that's something that I'm not great at. <laughs> I'm not consistent at whatsoever. But also I do yoga. And I use that time to, again, focus my breath, focus my mind and get back to the center and the spirit of who I am. And that's what keeps me going. And I'm able to get to the next point, especially when I'm not able to possibly have consistent meetings with my therapist. Thanks, Sabrina. Oh, by the way, you have question cards on your seats for those who are here in person. So if you've got questions for our speakers, uh, go ahead and write them down. And we have Lauren here who's going to pass them on through. So we'll, we'll get answers for you in just a little bit. Anyone want to add on healing mechanisms? Want to share? Um, Howie? Share a little. I think to Sabrina's point, I, um, I went to their period where I was like heavily depressed and it wasn't until COVID I realized like COVID meant everything was shut down. And so I didn't work. I didn't have school. I was left with me. And that's like, what is what is Howie? Who is Howie? What does she like? That's intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is intense. It's, it's a lot of time to then figure out. And so it was a lot of time to pick new hobbies. And I realized I really like plants. So um, if you've ever been in a Zoom call with me, there's just like so many plants in my room. Um, it got to the point where my room was too filled that I like started sleeping into my family's room. Um, and now they're proud plant owners as well. But plant care, I think being able to take care of something other than my own and really have that type of like therapeutic time where I'm watering and caring and making sure like once that grows, it's kind of like the manifestation of growth. And I can it's like a physical manifestation of what emotional growth looks like onto that plan. And so that's how I also um, kind of do that as well as like just being in nature. I, I walks <laughs> like physical exercise is so, so helpful and really necessary. Anyone else? Anyone else? Oh, um, for me, healing mechanisms, um, joining Poder, um, the organization, people organizing to demand economic and environmental rights, um, when I was a teen really helped me, like, being a part of something bigger, like, gave me purpose again, um, and I started doing, like, organizing work, um, when I was, like, sophomore, junior in high school, and then eventually, um, I graduated and I, um, went into working at Hummingbird Farm, which is like another part of Poder. They help manage that farm. And um, getting connected to the land, like um, how Howie was talking about, um, 
like just learning that you are like one with everything. And I think for me, especially like growing up in the city, it's like very fast paced. Everything is like now, like I'm used to like the internet, like getting results now. And I'd be like, when the safari's buffering, I get so irritated and I need to like remind myself to take a breath. And like working at the farm has definitely, um, helped me a lot because I've learned to, like care for plants and like learn about the seasons and how like things die, but they come back and how like, you know, um, just like looking, focusing on one plant, like talking to the plant, like, you know, like singing to it, singing to it too, watering it. And I know it sounds crazy, but like learning from the plant, I've learned like, you know, a plant itself doesn't worry about what the other plant, if that one's getting more sun, if that one's getting more water. Yeah. Like, it's just focused on itself, you know? Yeah. And so, like, um, applying that to myself and being like, okay, if I'm a plant, like, I need to water myself, I need to get my sunlight, you know, and, like, working together. Like, I learned about the mycelium network, like, how everything is connected, everyone's connected, and, like, if I'm doing good, then I'm able to bring good to other people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. There's something about what each of you had shared, you know, this like connection between um, nature and, and us as, as like humans and learning from all of you, what you've shared, your willingness to help others has, has been part of your healing mechanism and your willingness to, to share what's worked for you. I mean, that's, that's huge, right? Like, cause I think you share as you want it to be a better place for everybody else even if they're strangers let's talk about that part oh oh david you wanted I, to share yeah yeah tag an observation yeah that I made too yeah yeah sure i could i'm gonna i'm not gonna call anybody out because there's something that i was thinking about like if someone just looked at you and me they're gonna be like okay these two people look pretty different right like there's a, a there's appearance of different race and gender expression age and a, a whole of different things but what i heard you talk about a few minutes ago i call it but i'm the good kid syndrome and I have it too. And I grew up with it too. And I was like, there's this thing about something inside of you and or something that I believe or I have heard is inside of you or has been inside of you, which is also inside of me is that like, I defended against everything that I thought was going on by like being the good kid. I was like, no, but I'm going to study harder and I'm going to achieve academically. And then actually what that turned into a little bit later in life when I, when I had a job was Anytime I had to have an evaluation state like conversation with my boss, it turned into like like all the fear of like the the sh- like you know is this is this person gonna sh- am I gonna feel shame because I'm not good enough somehow when someone might be just like hey when I ask you for something on Friday I want you to hustle and actually turn it in on Friday it has nothing to do with who I am or whether I'm good or whether I'm good at my job even it's just like I just need to give you some feedback but my like. But I'm a good kid. Like stuff gets triggered, and it just like has that kind of shame response. But anyway, yeah, kind of wanted to. No, thank you for adding that and reminding. Yeah, right. No, totally, totally. And I also I have to do another one too. But I don't want to take up too more space. But um, also something that Sabrina and some and and you all was talking about plans and and hope. Sabrina was talking about it too, and it was um, it was that like hope is not an emotion. It's it's a. It's it's a system of it's like a belief. It's like I have a plan. There's something I'm looking forward to, and I believe that I can get there. And that's I that's probably been like some of my best mechanism for like getting through the wreck that was 2020 and much of 2021 is like a belief that there's going to be something on the other side. I want to make a nearish term plan for myself and the things I want to achieve. And like 
having something to like wake up for in the morning to work on has been huge for me. Cause if you're still in survival and so many of us get through that survival mode, it's like, bro, I'm just trying to get through the day or to my next class. Um, and you can't just live like that. Right. That's not as much as like, I, I got to have a next thing and I believe I can get there. And that's where hope comes from, I think. And I feel like I heard a little of each of you say something kind of like that. Those weren't your words, but I feel I felt the theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for, for that. For Where I was going with it was basically wanting all of you to just share, you know, that work that you're doing. That it's not necessarily only about yourself, even though you're prioritizing your own selves Mm -hmm. but you really are also doing peer-to-peer things um i mentioned you know sam you mentioned a little bit about being there for for other youths Mm. it's like let's let's share that i mean let's share that work and your why Uh, why you think it's so important to also show up from one another okay go ahead okay sorry uh so yeah for me um i mean we do a lot at youth alliance honestly um I think some some of the work we do that actually ties into the healing mechanisms is we do art like professional paint nights. We pair up with a local artist and he gives them classes kind of on just how to paint certain things. So that's pretty cool, especially we do it every once in a while. But sometimes, you know, it comes around times of the holidays so we could do something related to like what time of year it is. We've also paired up with an amazing nonprofit called Save by Nature. And so what they do is they try to make the outdoors more accessible to people. So with them, we've been able to take our youth on hiking and camping trips and stuff like that. And that's beautiful because nature is healing. And yeah, a lot of other work too. We do a ton of stuff around fentanyl, fentanyl awareness. And like, honestly, yeah, we we do a lot really. I mean, as an organization, we do tutoring services as a person, you know, just trying to work on myself and work with the youth and everything really just incorporating healing justice. I think that's something really I've been able to incorporate in both my personal life and in my work life. You know, I recently saw a definition that I really liked and just paraphrasing because it was kind of long, but it was like reviving ancestral practices to address generational trauma. And I just think that's beautiful because we always talk about the generational trauma that gets passed down, but we don't talk about all the wisdom that's been passed down from generations. And so I think the fact that not only are we acknowledging that wisdom, but we're using it to combat the the generational traumas that have been passed down. I think that's beautiful. And so that's honestly just a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I could go on forever, but yeah. Thank you for asking. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Sabrina, I feel like you uh... There's there's something you wanted to add? Yeah, I I would love to. And I think, thank you so much, Sam, for talking about the work that you're doing. That has been a thread in my career and personal life. It's really amplifying the voices of others um, in this fight for equitable access to resources and initiatives, especially for young people and young adults. Because even in 2022, people are still having the same experiences I had back in 2004, 2005, and their voices are being shut down. Um, And especially young people. I always say that young people are the now, they're not the future, right? We always say 
you know, the youth are the future. No, they're the now. Um, so it's very important, especially with the work I'm doing with DoSomething.org, to provide avenues for young people to have their voices amplified and for us to support them in advocacy measures, really using democracy as a vehicle for change. That's the underpinning of what we're doing um, aligned with our new strategic plan, creating youth focus and youth voice programs, um, you know, speaking to young people and saying, you know, what is going on with you? How is this affecting your life? And how can we support you in being change makers for this? Um, and a lot of what the young people said when we, you know, spoke with them and, and we did our assessment was, um, you know, we need resources. We need a seat at the table for that, though, right? Like, it's not, it shouldn't be performative. Don't call on us to talk about our mental health um, if you're not actually providing a seat at the table where we can amplify our voice and stand stand shoulder to shoulder with you to make change. Um, so that's what I think is most important about the work that I'm doing now and the work of Do Something is we're providing avenues for young people to actually be change makers, especially in the space of mental health. Um, it's not enough to have a conversation. We have to advocate for change and advocate for equitable access to the initiatives and the funding um, and, you know, other areas of well-being for young people to really thrive. Um, and if you change the trajectory of a child, we change the trajectory of the community. So if our young people can thrive, then, you know, by being adjacent to that, hopefully our communities can thrive and grow into this place where, you know, in you know, 2030, right? It seems like it's really far off, but it's not. Um, you know, we're no longer just having the conversation. Um, legislators are listening to us. There are bills passed. There are more services in schools and in the community to support the mental health needs of everyone. Hallie? Cute. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just a, you know, showing up for one another i mean you're why um but the work isn't really just about you yeah um i got my organizing start um with californians for justice which is based in south bay specifically san jose area um i think it was then when i learned about advocacy but i think what made me stay there was like their work with what healing looks like and different outlets for healing so there's activism and artivism and all these are a means of healing and providing that to someone else. But I think when I joined Yokali, who is a, a state organizing body, and um, they they don't do direct services to, unlike um, Sam's Org, they kind of do trainings. And really, I think the focus of being one of our main core values is um, healing justice. And so doing everything through the lens of healing justice. How do we make sure that those that are providing these you know, a your point, healing others and helping others are also not pouring from an empty cup. You can't because you can't pour from an empty cup. And so really providing that service. And then also like to um, Sabrina's point on the topic of funding, like youth know what we need. But most often than not, we are not asked what we are needed. They are, we are given. It does not work. You cannot solve problems without our input because we know what we want. We also know what we experience and we have... um I guess knowledge because it's our lived experiences and we have narratives to share. And so these, um, when we're making decisions about funding, it can't be from a position of power and then expecting it to trickle down to everybody else. And also making sure that, um, these are equitable where people of color, um, systems impacted part of the LGBTQ plus community are at that table is also something that should be necessary. And so these are how I. 
see things and how my organizing really shines through when it comes to healing justice. Fire. <laughs> Silali? Um, yes. Um, something that Hummingbird Farm did this year that was actually super amazing, hella dope, was um, we grew a lot of chamomile um, at our farm. And so we harvested a lot of it, like, for a good, like, I want to say, like, six months. I'm not sure, but it was a long time, and it was a lot of chamomile. And we also got rosemary and lavender, and we made little, like, chamomile tea bags, lavender roll-ons, and then rosemary spritz. And um, we, like, harvested, grew, harvested, packaged, and distributed them for all-in um, backpack giveaway. And this is backpack giveaway that happens every year in San Francisco. Um, and so we created about like 800 or 900, um, like plant medicine to give out to the youth. And it was super cool because, um, we were able to like create a little zine and like let the youth know that, you know, if you're feeling stressed or if you need, um, your stomach is feeling like uneasy, you can drink some chamomile tea. Um, if you're feeling like stressed and you want some like aromatherapy, you use the lavender roll-ons. Um, and then the rosemary, rosemary spritz was, um, like if you're studying, you spray it around because rosemary, when you smell it, like rushes blood to your brain. So it's really good for memories. Like we explained all of this and it was like super cool, um, to see like all the little, like it was like, um, from kindergarten all the way to like eighth grade high school, um, seeing all those like youth like leave with their backpacks and like they had other resources too, like they were giving out like free haircuts and everything. Um, but to see them leave with like plant medicine and knowing that they could rely, um, on that plant medicine for them to like, you know, get through things and also like letting them know that there's like a space at Hummingbird Farm for them to come in and it's like, it's really like for the community. Um, there's no, um, there's no gates. It's not locked. There's no fences, no barriers, nothing like you can come in at any time. And so just like letting the youth know that that space is there for them um, is really dope. Nice. Can I well, add one? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Howie. Um, it's just more like a uplifting Sam and Salali because the work they do is that they're providing these cares that ultimately they're systems impacted black and brown um, people that wouldn't get these types of cares that aren't, you know, where therapy is scarce or can't afford it or don't have access to it because of insured um, low-income folks. And so they're able to provide these alternative cares to healing. And so I really, really just want to uplift the work that they do because they do some amazing work and they're just so passionate about the, the cause. Right. Let's give a round of applause for all of our youth activists. Yeah. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> but I am so like just honored and proud and so grateful and thankful that y'all are doing the work that you're doing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to questions because we only have a few minutes left. And for those who are here in person, we do have a reception, and we have a special artist who's here with us this evening. He's gonna be doing some pieces for us. Um, so the first question i think this one is for howie actually so it's up to you if you want to answer it and by the way for those who wrote your questions thank you uh but we give an opportunity for our speakers to pass if they they want to so the question is did the myth of the strong black woman exist in ethiopia did you learn that myth in the usa 
Um, I mean, I think it would be more in the USA because I came to this country when I was seven. So it's only developed through like my existence here, I think. Um, but it's just the, the idea that black woman has to be strong. There's no space for weakness. And then if you, because if you have a moment where you break or you snap, you can't snap because then you're, then you validate the, the, the myth of the angry black woman. And so you had to walk this very straight and narrow line of like, just you have to have everything together. And so I think um, it's definitely something that um, as I grew up in America and I learned, uh, I was socialized. It's, it's American. Yeah. Sabrina's shaking uh, her head. Sabrina, did you want to add something to the yeah, question? Yeah, definitely what was already said is so important. And um, I think it's, a, it's interesting because I have uh, friends and colleagues who are from the diaspora. So, you know, Black, but they're Caribbean, um, African heritage, whatever that looks like. And in our conversations, we are all experiencing the same thing. And we're not quite sure where it came from, but it was modeled in our homes. And I had a, a conversation with my mother a few months ago, and it was modeled, you know, by her mom. And it was modeled by my great grandmother. And it's just this cycle that's continued, I think, uh, generationally, at least for black Americans that started during slavery, where we did not have the opportunity or the luxury um, to to fall apart. You had to keep it together. Um, and then we go into, you know, the 80s and the crack epidemic. Right. And black mothers, because fathers were being taken out of the home. Um, and a lot of other systemic issues going on. You had to be strong. Um, you couldn't you you couldn't break down. Um, you couldn't say that you needed help because who was there to help? Uh, so I think it's important that we continue to talk about it. Um, some people think that it's gone away because we're talking more about our mental health. We're talking more about our needs. We're asking for help, but it's still there. Um, I see it often, even you know, in my professional life, unfortunately. One last question from our audience before we move to the last question. I think this one's for you, David. How does one validate their own feelings? How can one be kind to ourselves? And and then, as we know how to be kind to ourselves, kind to others. Yeah, I, I wish I had a good answer. I, I, it, <laughs> I've been a therapist for 25 years. <laughs> I don't got that one. Um, because it's a daily practice, you know, and and it's like a... I think uh, there, there's no there's no core secret that's going to work for everybody, but I think what's helpful for very many people is to go meta sometimes. I mean, Sam, one of the first things you said you were talking about, like you, you lost it, you're like you went, you got mad, and then you were like, oh, that that wasn't me. And I, it's like, I it's like when you have something, and you're like, oh, that thing that I just did was totally unlike me. That clearly wasn't me. Who was that? Oh, it was the guy who had a really hard week at work this time. And, you know, it was like, it was like, oh, it was, the, it was the person who had this happen to them. And of course, that's a natural human response, right? So it's like every once in a while when stuff is really, really rough, if just for a minute you can pretend that you're a third person watching the situation and like, what would you tell that person? Like, like if you were that person's best friend who cared and loved that person and wanted the best for that person and could maybe see what was going on, what it, what would you tell that person and what kind of hope would you try to give that person? And that third person characteristic is really like the best parts of yourself 
that's what your voice is. It's like, it's like a projection, but it's like, what do I need to hear? Because it's in there. What I need to hear, I already know when it's in there somewhere, but I cannot access it when I'm in the situation. But if I can, if I can pretend that there's this wonderful, beautiful person who just cares and loves me, what would they say? Um, and that's the validation that you need to hear. And sometimes having it from another human being really is helpful that like, like I, I haven't been through the thing that you've been through, but I've had a feeling that's like yours and man, that was, that really sucked. And, um, just that I'm not alone. And it's that validation of someone witnessing my humanity and experience. But when you're by yourself and it's two in the morning, you don't have that access. Um, I think if you can, if you've got the strength in the moment to go meta and look at yourself from a different perspective, then that's where some of that validation can come from. Go meta. That's my right. new hashtag. <laughs> um, that was not like, a, that was, I didn't mean to make a corporate no. person. Like I, that's not where I was going. And also the first thing I said about religion, I know I did not mean to bash anybody's religion or spirituality. I was just talking about a me thing, but anyway, that was, right. I, I wanted to. Yeah. I actually forgot about Meta, Meta the company. I'm in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) Listening to you. Okay, last question for for all of us. I mean, you know, part of the discussion is about equity. So we obviously know that, you know, we need to build more equitable opportunities and pathways, especially for our youths and our mental health. So I'd love for each of you to take, um, you know, a few, maybe 30 seconds or so, but but tell us, you know, kind of, your final thoughts on how we can create the equitable pathway for youths and mental health. Um, I'm going to start with Howie because I feel like you're like, I got this one. <laughs> I don't know if I got this one. But um, to, I think, Tilali and um, Sam beautifully demonstrate that they know what's going on in the ground, that they're doing this work to provide um, healing and doing it in an equitable way and providing that equity. And so when we have these you know, pools of money together that are like, oh, we want to fund mental health for youth. What, how should we go about it? I think it's bringing and elevating people like Simon Zalali who do these type of works and really having their input and in how this money is distributed and really then centering grassroots organizations that are doing this work because they do it in a means of, an equitable means. And so that's how I personally see uh, um, the equitable nature of this. Sam? Yeah. Oh, well, 30 seconds is pretty tough to cover all that. Um, Find a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, I would say, you know, I think in order to create equitable systems around mental health, I think we need to think about yeah equity. Right. And so how I said in my job, I work on fentanyl. Right. And fentanyl awareness. I think we can look at how the stigmatization and criminalization of drugs and substance abuse as a way of a lot of people not having their needs met, right? They they have to lean on that as a last resort to cope as a way of survival. The way we've criminalized that, especially for black and brown communities, I think we need to look at that in, in addition to a lot of other issues. That's simply one example of how mental health and and like activism are are intertwined right because it's it's a cause and effect these social issues of mental health if we address mental health better then it wouldn't cause the need for people to feel like they have to cope with substances but at the same time it's an effect because when we lock people up for their survival mechanisms then their whole community feels that the the absence of them, a part of them is locked up with those people. And so it's really led to us hating our own loved ones 
simply because their needs aren't met. And so instead of asking what's wrong with these people, I think we just need to start asking what's wrong with the systems in place to where these people felt like they needed to depend on issues such as substances. Absolutely. Silali. Um, something that I think about um, is, like, how you brought up prevention, Sam. I think, like, I read a post saying, like, how, like, um, housing, having housing is, like, suicide prevention. Getting more meals is suicide prevention. Like, getting education is suicide prevention. And, like, something that I see a lot, um, especially with, like, the pandemic, um, has been, like, having, giving youth jobs, like having them get paid, having them feel like they belong to something, like there's like, they have this like sense of purpose. Um, I'm going to share like my niece during the pandemic, she got really depressed, like me and her would talk a lot, like we would share like we were feeling really down. And recently she just started working and I went to go visit her at work. And it was really funny because I got there and I was like, oh, like, how do you like your work? She was like, oh, my God, I love it. She was like, I love it. She's like, I feel like I'm doing something. I'm getting paid. Like, I like, you know, she's like um, like a different person. She's a lot more motivated in school. She's doing a lot better in school. And um, it's like seeing young people get paid and being like passionate about the work they do, like having meaning in their life. I feel like that's like a big part that like, people don't realize, like giving them like autonomy for themselves, like having their own little like money, being able to like spend it on what they want and like just giving them a sense of purpose. That's a big part. Nope. Sabrina. Thank you so much. Uh, I think the first step is listening listening to the communities that we're working in, listening to the people that we're saying we're trying to help. Um, a lot of times we go in with solutions in mind and we're not actually listening to the folks who are most impacted. Um, you know, communities, some communities are struggling with blight, right? Community blight, um, lack of access to green spaces. And they're telling us this is what's wrong with our community and it's affecting our mental health, not necessarily using those words. You know, so if we start addressing the issues that people are saying um, are the most challenging for them, then we can build up to greater solutions. And in terms of how we impact mental health or um, indirectly or directly impact mental health and overall well-being. The second thing is recognizing that there's not a one size fits all. Um, everyone is their own person and their own individual, and it can look different. Um, the symptoms of depression and anxiety and anything else that's going on looks different from person to person. And I think we need to throw out. So, you know, as someone who is a psych major and a social worker, I have my DSM, you know, diagnostic statistical manual sitting next to my desk all the time. And sometimes I just want to throw it against a wall because it's like this is not what it looks like. And this person is still struggling with this challenge, right? Or this diagnosis. And then the third and last thing that I think is extremely important is removing labels. Um, you know, every time there's some type of violent act, um, a lot of times the media labels someone as having a mental health challenge, right? That's when we hear about mental health in the media because someone was violent, um, some act happened, and that's not true, right? Like folks who struggle with mental health, they're actually the most vulnerable populations. Um, so removing those labels, stop calling everything, you know, a mental health diagnosis, removing that stigma um, is a way forward to truly address the well-being of people in this country, especially young people who are experiencing symptoms at so much higher rates, especially after COVID. 
Anything to add, David? Um, uh, I would say if when, when we have the opportunity to choose to be helpful, do it. And at a minimum, don't make the choice that is harmful. Um, I think I, I, 100%, when, when I was thinking about what am I going to say, you said it before I, I had a chance to, Sabrina, but it was like, you know, white people need to listen to people who aren't white and believe what they say. Cisgender people, straight people, anybody who's in a moment of privilege, maybe it's not permanent privilege. Like I, I, I experience oppression and privilege, right? But like when you're in a moment of privilege, listen to other people, believe. And it's not, you know, it's like I, I have I have learned from others. It's not that like uh, treat people how you want to be treated. It's pe- treat people how they tell you that they want to be treated. Um, and that the the thing that helps some people doesn't help everyone. So you got to tailor make the way that people ask for help and want help and how you can listen to them and respond. Let's give a round of applause for all of our speakers. Thank you so much, David, Howie, Sam, Sitlali, and Sabrina. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you to Blue Shield of California and Blue Sky for supporting this opportunity to come together and offer our vulnerabilities as well as our strengths. And a lot of these things that we talked about, um, you know, these are these are solutions for our future. This is our future. Thank you to all of you for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And thank you to all of you who joined us online. The Commonwealth Club of California produces over 500 programs every year. And so if you're interested in learning more, you can head to commonwealthclub.org. And so for those of you who are here, you're in for a treat. There's a reception coming up. For those of you who are online, we might say goodbye soon, but stick around. We have a couple things coming up. At this time, I'd like to recognize two other organizations, actually three. I think we have the the uh, Community Youth Center here with us. Is Sarah Wan here? Yes, Sarah is here. So Sarah, uh, we'll have you start first. You saw that you heard from these other organizations who are doing some critical work. We're going to hear just from a couple more who are just going to come up and share a little bit about their organization and how they show up for youths. So I'm going I'm to borrow Ola's um, mic here. And so, Sarah, you'll come up first. Thanks for having me. Um, sorry, I'm a little sick, so I, so I try to stay away from everyone and with the mask. Oh, so you can go here. <laughs> I would like really want to say thank you. I really agree with Sabrina, especially the last comment about anti-stigmatization, because I think in Asian community, especially, it has been such a big stigma for any parents actually allow the youth to actually come to mental health services. And I also want to say that mental health not necessarily is an illness. We should actually treat it from with prevention lens and also the intervention lens. It's actually like a spectrum from list just like your health, your wellness. So I think that's something very important message that would give it, express it to the youth and also the parent, and also be cultural competence service to make sure that we really provide the equity we talk about here. Thank you, Sarah. We also have San Francisco Pride here. So Suzanne Ford, our executive director of San Francisco Pride. Thank you all so much. Um, I know it seems a little silly. What does San Francisco Pride, we throw a big party, and what does that have to do with mental health? But one of our, one of our, one of our parts of our uh, mission is to educate the world and liberate our people. And I see it all the time in our community when we're doing work. And there's a lot of trauma in our communities, like you talked about. And it makes listening to each other so difficult. But we can't liberate our people without mental health. And, you know, I, 
Um, grew up in Kentucky in a very toxic masculine situation, hiding who I was. And, and I didn't get that help at a young age. I didn't have any, any, any role models. And so hopefully at San Francisco Pride, when we're doing this work, we're out in the community and we're talking about we all struggle. I, that often bothers me is, you know, I, I suffer from bipolar disorder and I feel like a lot of days people think I really have it together and I want to grab somebody and say, I really don't, you know, I need some help. So thank you so much for the work and really applaud what you're doing. And the last organization is Lyric, who couldn't be with us today because, well, it's December and life after COVID. And so I encourage all of you to keep each other safe, we know, and, and also uh, give space for the healing part in which when we do um, get sick. But part of tonight is also to acknowledge that many of our youth organizations and services who provide, uh, or I'm sorry, organizations that provide services to youth are under attack. And I think it's another program to go into why they're under attack. Uh, but please acknowledge the work of our youths. Let's protect one another. Let's keep each other safe. So thank you all. I'm Michelle Miao. Good night. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.